This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I usually sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today I'm doing something a little different. As I have mentioned in previous episodes, The Beauty of Horror now has a monthly service on coffee with various tiers. Each tier will get access to a new monthly segment entitled The Good, The Agreeable, and The Beautiful. I had a few recordings I needed to reschedule recently, which opened things up for me, so I decided to give everyone a look into how this new segment will work. Today's episode is a bit of a tester, or a taster if you will. So it is far less structured than an episode on coffee would be. To give everyone the right idea of how things would go, I put up a poll on Twitter asking followers to pick between four films. The newly released Malignant, the original Hellraiser from 1987, Let the Right One In from 2008, and the original House on Haunted Hill from 1959. Hellraiser was the resounding winner of the poll. As such, I will give a brief review of Clive Barker's seminal classic based on three criteria. Is it good? Is it agreeable? To me? And is it beautiful? Now, as this is episode zero, I thought it would be a good place to outline what I mean by these criteria. All three are derived from Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher from the 1700s whose work ranged from transcendental philosophy to existentialism to aesthetics and, you know, beyond. The latter of these, though, is the most important part of his work for my own. So before getting into detail about his definitions of goodness, agreeableness, and beauty, I do think it's important that we understand how all of this works. In order to evaluate our aesthetic judgments to anything, be it a piece of art in a gallery, a film at home, or even something like a tree on our walk home from work, we have to enter a state of mind that Kant calls disinterested. Now, this sounds pretty contradictory to the act of analyzing something. I mean, how can we truly analyze something if we lack interest, right? Well, Kant isn't actually saying that you should have absolutely no interest in a subject. Rather, what he means is that you should endeavor to be in a state of mind where you aren't looking for anything specific. I'll stick to the realm of film as an example, since that's most relevant for our discussions. So instead of watching a film with any exact expectations or parameters it must meet, you should push yourself to experience the film with an open mind. This is a lot more work than it might sound, though. According to Kant, if we enter such a disinterested state, we can better look at our experience overall. We can better focus on how we are feeling, and then we can take the follow-up steps of analyzing why we feel that way. So put aside the nostalgia goggles, your desires, or your self-imposed needs before critiquing a piece of art. Let your experience guide you. Now we can get into what it is we're looking for in the first place. Kant refers to the positive sensations we get from aesthetic experiences as satisfaction. If we are satisfied by our aesthetic experience, we can then look into different realms of criteria to classify just what it was that gave us such satisfaction. Or, in other words, when we like something, 
there are a lot of reasons why we might like it. Meaning, not everyone likes things for the same reasons. This is where the criteria for this podcast come into play. In his book, Critique of the Power of Judgment, Kant describes goodness as, quote, that which pleases by means of reason alone through the mere concept. He goes on to clarify this by pointing out that we call something good for something, the useful, that pleases only as a means. However, another thing is called good in itself that pleases for itself. So what he's saying here is that for something to be considered good in philosophical terms, it must either be useful or it must be good at being what it is. In film, both versions of good apply. Some films possess subject matter and performances that are very useful for us to learn about the world around us. They can be historical, philosophical, or cultural. Likewise, a film can be good by just being a good film. Is it made well? Are the performances convincing? Do all of the aspects of the film work together in an effective way? If yes, then we can say from an objective position that the film is good. But notice how there are clear criteria we can apply to whether something is good or not. This is due to the fact that according to Kant's, goodness is linked with interest. To determine whether something is good or not, we have to know what good is, and then we have to look for it. So good is an objective judgment based on your subjective experience. That's an important bit of information. Let's be clear here. All experiences are subjective. You can make objective claims about the object of your experience, but your experience is wholly your own, even if it resembles the experiences of others very closely. Now let's look at agreeable. Kant says that the agreeable is quite different from the good. Although both please us, Kant writes that the agreeable is that which pleases the senses in sensation. He goes on to clarify further what he means by this by sensation. He says he uses the term feelings. So the agreeable is the pleasure we get from the sensations derived from an aesthetic experience. This is where disinterestedness is important. Only when we are in a disinterested state of mind can we truly appreciate our sensations. How does the film make you feel? Do you like the emotions and feelings it elicits? If so, it is agreeable to you. This is where we get statements of love and hate for a film. However, it's also important to not get these feelings conflated with our judgment of whether something is good or not. A film can be very good, but not work for you for some reason. You could love a film that you know is just not very good. These criteria are the backbone of careful art critique, so try to make that distinction in your judgments. Now we can look at beauty. Beauty is a much broader, more expansive concept than goodness and agreeableness. It would take me quite some time to unpack it all here. So for the sake of time, I will keep things brief and we can continue to explore the vast reaches of beauty in The Beauty of Horror. This podcast episode is meant to be more of an educational discussion that applies these concepts in a practical way. The biggest difference Kant provides between the agreeable and the beautiful is that the beautiful is a more universal sensation. For Kant, that which is agreeable is purely subjective. You can say it is agreeable for you, but when we talk of beauty, it's far more universal in nature. Beauty shakes us up. It overwhelms us. It's a feeling that is really difficult to put our finger on and describe. 
The beauty of horror was designed to showcase how widespread the feeling of beauty can be and to show how we can single out the feeling of beauty amongst other sensations such as good and agreeable. That's what I will do more clearly here. In fact, I think we have a pretty good basis to start with, so let's take a look at this episode's topic of discussion. Hellraiser. As this episode has had a lot of preamble, I'm going to keep the analysis super short. I don't want this to run too long. Future episodes will focus on the films in far more detail with only a brief reminder of what the three criteria mean. Now, for those who have not seen Hellraiser, here's a brief synopsis. Frank Cotton, a hedonistic pleasure seeker, comes into possession of a gilded puzzle box that is said to unlock all the pleasures of hell. He opens the box in a trance-like state. Chains burst from inside of it and rip him apart. All that is left is meat and blood. Frank's family, consisting of his brother Larry, sister-in-law Julia, and niece Kirsty, move into the brother's old family home to rebuild the bond between Larry and Julia after Julia had an affair with Frank just before her and Larry's wedding. They all wonder what became of Frank, though. He hasn't been seen for quite some time, though they all suspect he's out having some adventure or another. While in the attic, Larry cuts his hand on a nail. The blood that pooled on the floor resurrects the underdeveloped body of Frank. Eventually, Julia comes across the monstrosity Frank has become, and their passion for each other is reignited. Frank plots to kill Larry and take over as the family patriarch, but he needs a full body to do so. He employs Julia to bring more blood for him to absorb. She seduces men from town, bringing them to the attic for Frank to feast on. One day, Kirsty catches Julia with another man and follows them home. She witnesses Frank murdering the poor soul, but is caught. He tries to attack her, but she distracts him by throwing the puzzle box out of the window. She escapes and grabs the box as she runs away. Tired and distressed, Kirsty passes out soon after. She wakes in a hospital with the box in her hand. She opens the box, which summons a group of demons called Cenobites, who claim to bring pleasure and pain to those that call them. Before they can drag her away, Kirsty strikes a deal with the Cenobites. Frank has escaped hell. With her help, the Cenobites can bring him back and punish him for ever trying to leave. The deal is made, and the hunt is on to stop Frank before he becomes too powerful. So, real talk. All that was nicely scripted and everything, but we're going to get off script now. Far more like the beauty of horror, I'm going to talk a little more freely and very briefly here. Uh, it's very late at night that I'm recording this right now, but I really wanted to give you all something to listen to and a discussion about a film that you really enjoyed. So I'm happy that everybody put the effort into voting in that poll. And I think Hellraiser is a wonderful movie to start with. I think it already showcases the dilemma that you have when you're trying to talk about the complexities of taste with a film because I think a lot of us revere this movie but to say that it fits all criteria in in the same way would just be untrue and I know people who are just disgusted by this film they detest it in in a way that is profound just because of the visceral response that they're having to it but I think we can all appreciate the way it's made and stuff so Let's go through the criteria we have. We have good, agreeable, and then I've added beautiful because that's what he was talking about in that section of his book and because it applies to my own research. So do I find this movie to be good? Let's start there. Well, as I said, to be good, it has to be good in the fact that it is useful for something or it has to be good at what it is. And I think as a film, it is very good. 
it drags a bit, but I'd still say it's good. It's not bad. Okay doesn't really exist in this. It's either good or it's bad if we're going to talk in philosophical terms. And Clive Barker has crafted a story here that takes its time, but it also does so with a point. Everything is moving towards something. No time is wasted on anything. That synopsis right there is probably the first half hour of the film, and it's a pretty short film. So it's a testament to the film that you have to kind of discuss the first half of the film, basically, in order to just lead up to the actual plot of it. And so much is going on. And, you know, this is coming from The Hellbound Heart, which is a short story written by Clyde Barker. The man himself wrote it. He directed it. All of it is his product. And you can see that through the film, too, that this is a very singular persona behind it or, you know, one vision that's making the film. And I just find it's very competently filmed. The use of light is very strong in it. Uh, The distinction between the demonic world and the human world, the effects that are being used, uh, the performances, they're all very strong, very good, very very well-written characters as well. So if we look at the different components here, script, cinematography, performance, it's a very good film. It has its prestige for a reason. It's been released on multiple DVDs and Blu-rays and VHS for a reason. Yes, it's good. Is it agreeable? Now, this is where we're all going to have a different opinion. Even if we have the same opinion, it's still going to be a little different. For me, absolutely agreeable. I love this movie. Now, I didn't like it the first time I saw it. You know, like a lot of people, I knew Pinhead as one of your great slasher characters. But also, I hadn't seen the movie. (laughs) So, I remember for years that in the video stores, this was the poster that just made me go, "Mm mm-mm. I'm not watching that. It's too scared. Pinhead scared the shit out of me. I didn't want to see this. Something about the puzzle box unnerved me. To this day, it makes me a little nervous. The whole concept of it really freaks me out. And that's why it. I, I think it agrees with me. I think that what Barker's trying to get out there, I'm really down for. Because once I got used to the fact that this is not a slasher movie, he's not a Freddy Krueger character, and f- let's face it, if you want that, you can watch Hellraiser 3, But if you're wanting to watch this original one and you're kind of expecting something else, yeah, I may not agree with you the first time that you see it. But for me now that I've seen it like five, six times, uh, the characters just sweep me away. Like Frank and his sexual energy that he has throughout the whole film. For one, I mean, a very handsome man at the beginning of the film who's sitting there playing with this puzzle box and stuff. You can feel the energy coming off of him, the way the lights are. All of it has this hypersexual, hyper-dark feeling to it. And you get that sense of the pleasure that comes with the pain, that kink that's there in this film. It works for me. I feel that it expresses itself really, really well. And all the other characters, too. I think Larry is played to perfection. There's just such a dopey, just normal middle-class guy who, although he's aware that his wife sleeps around, just seems to not be aware that his wife sleeps around. And, I mean, come on. How could you not love Claire Higgins as Julia in this movie? (sighs) Julia is a wonderful bad guy. I love that she becomes the main villain in Hellraiser 2. But in this one, she's just like the vessel for Hell. She has to get her introduction to Hell. It's just, she's kind of like, 
a truly demonic version of Delia Dietz. And Delia Dietz came later as well, but I get the same vibe from them a little bit. But in this case, Julia has a far more sinister and controlling vibe than even Delia has. For one, Beetlejuice is a comedy, but yeah, I digress. Julia is just this matriarch without any sort of maternal instinct at all. She has no interest in being a mother to anybody. She just wants to control. And the fact that her power play with Frank is just the two of them kind of like equally loving the fact that the other one's trying to control them. It's very sexy and it's very steamy. Just it's almost dreary in a way. It, it has this this darkness to it that makes the movie really heavy. Kirstie's played wonderfully here. I, I love the character. I think she's one of the best final girls out there. If we can even apply that kind of moniker to her, at the very least, she's one of the best female protagonists that you have in a horror film. The way that she just immediately strikes a deal with the Cenobites when they pop up, she could have just panicked and went like, "Oh God," and just died. But you know, Kirstie's too smart very intelligent kid who's got some street smarts on her and i love that the cinnabites are like all right we'll play we're gonna listen to you for now but also love that they scold her like a child every time they see her and you know i haven't even mentioned doug bradley yet but of course the man himself pinhead really steers a lot of this film you feel his presence when he's not even there and you know that it's coming and you just know that when it's going to happen it's going to be powerful and it delivers every single time the lines that he delivers in this film the, the you know will tear your soul apart those things just they stick with me and that image of him on the cover is really a promise the film keeps so for me i find it very agreeable would you find it agreeable? I don't know. Can you handle buckets of blood? Can you handle actual slaps of meat everywhere? Chains, rust, all kinds of stuff. There's not a lot of it, but every time Frank is on screen, I mean, you're seeing just dripping blood and skin and pulsing meat, and it's a disgusting film. I like that. I think the gore is used to do something. Barker's the master at this. You know, Candyman's one of those properties as well that the violence and the gore has a point to it. And here it's the same. He's trying to show an allegory for love and, and how we are but flesh. That is all we are. We are only flesh. And when you think about how we are just flesh kind of banging against each other when, you know, we're, we're in the throes of sexual ecstasy. It's a painful process, but it's also a pleasurable process, just like a lot of things. And that is so human, and I love that. So this movie agrees to me on, on a lot of levels. Um, maybe I got some issues. I don't know. <laughs> but for, for me, I find it very agreeable. Now, is it beautiful? This is where I find it difficult to say. I mentioned the universality of beauty, and... <sighs> That is the most controversial part of Kant's formulation of beauty. And one of the reasons I started the podcast to begin with is because I find it difficult to say that beauty can't be subjective. You know, we're talking about the opinions of men from the 1700s, 1800s, who were still trying to tell you what a beautiful woman was and how you can see their shape and the, the, the proportion and the smoothness of the skin. And it was, it was all a little uncomfortable and, Frankly, if your whole criteria and basis is to talk about women's bodies as your foundation, you've got a problem. And it's not 
doing you any favors for your research. And I think we've outgrown that. So for me, I just kind of feel like, I mean, yeah, I think there are times you're going to see a tree or something or a dog and you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. But there are other people who just don't like dogs and because dogs don't agree with them. They're going to be like, I don't know, it looks mangy to me. Um, so it's hard to say, like, can we say that beauty is universal? I don't want to, you know, make that judgment call so much just yet because that's my research is me trying to figure things like that out. But do I find this movie to be beautiful? Uh, yes, I do. But not everywhere. I think that there is a charm in this very gritty kind of almost Vietnam documentary style filmmaking that's here. I think that has more to do with the lower budget of the film. You know, that Barker did have to scrounge a bit up to make the movie. And there was a lot of good faith from the actors making this stuff as well. So it, it has a charming grit to it that I would not call beautiful, but I do think that there are certain scenes and shots that are breathtaking. Like I said, that opening sequence of Frank sitting in the room in Morocco, sweating, the way his body's glistening, the way the light's hitting him, the way the, the darkness in the room is really over-exaggerated, and then you get all the flashing lights with the puzzle box. The box itself is beautiful. There are a lot of beautiful elements. So I've mentioned on The Beauty of Horror, if you look at the different episodes we've had, Beauty comes into play on a you know more general level. If we look at the cinematography, say in a film, but also just the beauty of people comes into play. And in this movie, absolutely. I mean, everybody's gorgeous, just absolutely gorgeous. I think I'm in love with everybody in this movie, uh, and even the you know the Cenobites. I'm just like, yes, I'm into that. <laughs> gorgeous people. So there's that. There's the fact of framing the way Clive Barker's eye shows things. Even when Frank is being resurrected in this kind of stop motion animation style, and it's just so oozy, pulsing, disgusting stuff, I found it quite beautiful to behold. I think that's why it works so well is you're sitting there just, you're disturbed, but you're also really taken by what you're seeing. Uh, there's the beauty of the performances I find as well. Everybody delivers their lines with such power and gusto. And I just, beautiful voices, beautiful voices on beautiful people saying beautiful things. It's very beautifully written because it is about love. This movie, love and lust, desire, pain, pleasure, all of those things. It's a movie about emotional experiences in the most extreme way, but because of that, I do find that it's a great start for this sort of discussion. So, yes, I'd say it's beautiful. It kind of ticks all three for me. So, this would be, if you, if you put the stars on it, you know, it's three stars. It's It's got everything it needs. I don't really like to do that, especially in this context, but yeah, it is good. It is agreeable to me, and it is beautiful. So what I want, uh, I have a bit of a call to action for all of you. What I'd like you to do is if you've heard this episode, uh, it would mean a lot to me if you were to go into Twitter and find the podcast so that's at Beauty Horror Pod, reach out to me and tell me what your rating 
of Hellraiser would be based on this criteria. So let me know that you've listened to this. Uh, also, if you could, please give us a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. So anywhere that you could leave a comment or something, it would really mean a lot to me because I want to know your opinions on this. Based on this criteria, how would you analyze this movie? Also, please, please let me know if you want to hear more things like this. If this is something that is interesting to you, if you want to hear my views this way, want to learn more about this division of judgments of taste then uh, I would gladly do this. Uh, it's it's still you know planned to be for the coffee thing. We're, we're still looking for our first backers, but as soon as we have them, we will start producing this content for you. But every now and then, maybe if I can't get a guest for that week or we're running behind or something, I can quickly sit down and make such an episode for you. So if you want to hear more of the good, the agreeable, and the beautiful as a sort of mini-sode, do say so. I will be listening. But it's time to round off, everybody. This podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad, so be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The Scream Teens with Gory, Corey, and Lena. White Ladies in Crisis, hosted by Jen Adams, Anatomy of a Scream's own Joe Lipset, and Gina Radcliffe, and much, much more. So you can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic. And you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org, where I've started to put reviews up. I just put up my spoiler-free review for Malignant, and my spoiler review for Malignant is just around the corner when I have time to write and put it up there. So please check that out. And of course, thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this, for giving me a chance and for always being there for me. So thank you, dear listener, for joining me in talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. There's no beauty here. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.